Hello. Welcome. This is Silent Generation. We've been on a little bit of a holiday hiatus, but we're back now. I was off in New York City. Yeah. Um, how is New York City? It was great. I say I was off in New York City. I was there for one day. I was also in upstate New York in nature visiting grandparents, but I love New York City. I don't know. I, I feel like you're not allowed to as a Chicagoan, but I'm really warm to it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're the city that's like most similar to Chicago, other than maybe like Philadelphia. But I've always heard that Philadelphia thing. Yeah, that they have the same kind of like working class character that people say. It's just uh, because there are essentially six legacy transit cities, mm-hmm. New York City, Chicago, Boston, Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., and San Francisco. San Francisco yeah, and all of those are exorbitantly expensive, except <laughs> for Chicago and Philadelphia. Oh, yeah. No, I was watching one of those um, City Nerd videos. He's comparing, like, cost of living. I didn't realize there was a huge differential between Boston and Philadelphia. Like, I sort them in the same way in my mind. But it, apparently that's not how it is. So, yeah. Yeah. So, topic we want to talk about this week is men in uniform. I just kind of pulled it out of a hat, I feel. I just wanted to do a more fashion-y episode and talk about stuff that I like. But, yeah. yeah. I didn't even know what direction we were going to go with this, but it felt like I basically put together, I mean, this is every episode, but I put together basically like a thesis in two to three weeks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> every episode is like... I, I do not put together a thesis. I, I hope to arrive at my thesis by the end of, <laughs> of yeah. the spiel. Conversations yeah. are a very good way to come to conclusions. Like yeah. the ancient Greeks, the way that they would think mm-hmm. about philosophy was through conversations. Yeah. But yeah, this week, like... It, more that we had more time than usual, so yeah. it felt like I was going back to the same elements. And like our docket got pretty long, it's like yeah. eight pages. I've got some, yeah, no, that's a big one. But on like conversations and stuff, the art history videos I love so much on YouTube, Smart History, it's always just a conversation between two people, and they're like looking at the piece of art, or they're in the place like the Sistine Chapel, if that's the subject of the episode, and they're talking in like hushed tones about the art. and. I guess, I guess it is kind of ASMR adjacent when you think about it. I don't like to associate with those people, though. ASMR weirds me out. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I like the, I like the I don't know, two-person conversation format for stuff. Um, yeah. So on the topic of uniforms, I do have actually a bit of an idea of the structure of like how I want to tackle this topic. But maybe a good place to start would be a quote that I pulled from a book called Uniforms by Paul Fussell. In it, he said this thing that I, I really struck a chord. He said that when I first began pursuing the subject, I assumed that many people wearing uniforms in low-paying work resented being the compulsory bearers of such visible evidence of their subordinate condition. But what did I find? All but universal pride in a uniform of any kind, comparable with that felt by an enlisted Marine on graduation day. The uniform, no matter how lowly, assures the audience that the wearer has a job, one likely not to merely be temporary, and one extorting a degree of respect for being associated with a successful enterprise. The uniform attaches one to success. Hmm. The not being a merely temporary job, I didn't think about that. Like, if you have a uniform, that means that the company has put some effort of funds into you, objectively. Like, you could not even be fully trained yet, but they give you a uniform before they even fully train you. A yeah. lot of positions. So it's like the first step towards like, look, look, someone cares about me. Someone being a corporation or hopefully a small business or something. But Yeah. yeah. No, this book is a bit older. I think it came mm-hmm. out in the mid-2000s. And 
the guy who wrote it was like a World War II veteran. And uh, I mean, for sure, like you can be wearing a uniform and say you're a temp you're a temp worker yeah. in a triangular employment relationship. Yeah. It can be temporary. Triangular employment relationship. Yeah, that's a good term. <laughs> that's a, yeah, it is. I've always I've tried to avoid those. I remember when I first started applying jobs, like out of COVID or so, there was a lot of like, where on, on your taxes, you'll be working for the recruitment company for a year. And they turn you into a like employee for the company by name, contract to hire, one of those. Yeah. And those just seem strange to me. Like, no, I want to be like a full member of this company if I'm starting there. Yeah. yeah. Um, with the pride of uniforms thing, you said this was written in the mid 2000s? This book, Uniforms, yeah. it was, yeah, it was written in the mid 2000s. Uh -huh. And it does, you can kind of get a sense from that because, like, he definitely was coming from a world that, like, had more standardized uniforms than what we see today. But yeah. uniforms are definitely still important. Mm -hmm. I, th I was just thinking of, like, to try and be devil's advocate to his point, like, I don't think people are proud of their McDonald's uniforms, you know, unless they are. Maybe I'm being, maybe I'm being classist or something. But on different types of uniforms back in the 50s and stuff, I, I think, was that... I really can't speak firmly on this, but was that like a high point in uniformed people in American society? Because I'm picturing the milkman, the mailman. There was even an ice man before refrigeration was good, so that would be, you know, 30s and 40s. I've even heard of a diaper man back when cloth diapers was a thing. He'd go around and collect everyone's diapers and clean them and give people diapers. So, like, it seems like we think nowadays that we have so much delivered to us, but there's a decent amount of, like, service to you stuff even back in the 40s and 50s. yeah. I mean, I think that the reason why the people Paul Fussell had talked to didn't have as much shame about working in lower class work that involved uniforms was maybe just because now in the present day, most people work for very large corporations because of acquisitions and mergers. We have, we live in a world of mm -hmm. monopoly power again, but he was coming from the 50s when there was better antitrust enforcement. There were yeah. way more small businesses per mm -hmm. capita. And from my perspective, there's always been like more dignity in, in small working for a small business. Yeah, I always thought that too. Like I was, there's this place called Calumet Fisheries, which is like a fish smoking place on the south side of Chicago on like 95th Street. They recently burned down. People are lightly accusing them of insurance fraud, but nothing has been um, like actually charged. But I just, I was talking to the guys there and this is a place that's like, this is like the far south side of Chicago. This is pretty economically depressed. And all that's really around there is like fast food joints and stuff. And I think like, wow, either you work at a Wendy's or you work for a 90-year-old like family company where you learn the trade of smoking fish, like essentially a lost art. You're doing something that literally, like, not only is no one doing anymore, but you have to be grandfathered in by the city to run a fish smoking shack. Like that's not a new type. You cannot apply yeah. for one of those nowadays. Um, and I'm like, that's just such an easy choice. Like. It's not an easy choice when you think about stuff like commute or like compensation and things, but like at least you're a part of a thing. I, I stopped by there to pick up some stuff and they said they carried um, kopi, which is the invasive Asian carp. And they were, I asked, like I'd heard about it and I asked them about it. They said, oh, it's not done smoking yet, but do you want to go see it? And they like took me out to the back shed and they like opened up the smoking thing and like showed me how they make it. And I was like, oh. Were my. they big? Um, they were like more than a foot. Yeah, I would say, yeah. Because uh, I've heard if you like, because I think I've seen videos where like people are going down rivers and they start jumping out. Yeah. And if you get hit by them, 
you yeah. can get like seriously hurt. No, that would hurt. Yeah, I saw a video of someone hit one with a boomerang. Like one jumped out of the lake and they like whacked it with a boomerang. <laughs> I feel like it's very satisfying. Yeah. Um, but yeah, to get back to the quote from Paul Fussell, I think that one of the things he touches on, or I guess it's more so implied to me, is that that quote made me think about why the idea of uniforms feels so American. I think it's just because we attach a lot of importance to work in this country, and people here often introduce and describe themselves with their job title. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I always resort to when there's like a lull in a conversation when I meet someone, I do hit them with the uh, what do you do thing. I don't know. I feel yeah. like that's not the move in some spaces. <laughs> I feel like it is a very like square. I mean, that's way do. more accessible than the question like where are you from? Even though as like an urbanist, I love asking that question. Yeah. I don't think, I've never seen anyone seize up at like asking where they're from unless they're so deeply ashamed of it. I can't think of a shameful place to be from. But no, it's like, say, I mean, amongst like, for me, for example, like growing up in Chicago, Mm -hmm. like I mostly grew up around people who were raised in the city. Asking people where they're from implied I thought they were like immigrants. Oh, um, but now now as like an adult, for example, in our friend group, a lot of the people aren't from Chicago, so like yeah. it's normal in that circle to ask that question. Mm-hmm. But no, it's nice being like kind of a a focal point city like that. You can kind of assume that like there's a good chance people aren't from here. Um, yeah, but you like asking people where they work. I I don't even know if I like it. It's just I, you got to have something to work with. You know, the yeah. only bad outcome of that question is like. Someone who just wants to bitch about their job and not in a funny way, or they don't have a job and they're unemployed. Um, but I can yeah. usually even spin that because I've been unemployed for stretches, an old one stretch. Yeah. I don't like when I ask someone about their job and then they want to keep talking about it a lot. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a pleasantry kind of thing. If I ask them about their job, I probably do want to ask some follow ups, but I don't want them to start telling me about like their work day. Yeah. I've never been the type where I'll exit work and I'll want to tell people about like the nuances of what I was doing Mm -hmm. but like I for example I once had like a roommate who was working as a waitress and she would come (laughs) home and want to talk for hours about like all of her coworkers and customers and like Uh, I could never find interest in like the day-to-day of like what she was doing it -hmm. it was really boring to me yeah things have to cross I I try and set a high interesting threshold for work stories I feel like Usually I'm pretty lucky, you know. I don't know if a, if a field guy says something really funny. I think that's usually a good way in. Um, or if something truly out of pocket happens on a job site. Or there was the time that we had to use a crane to lift a tub onto a house. That one I talked about for weeks. That was just really fun for me. And everyone yeah. likes the idea of it, lifting up an 800-pound tub. Yeah, I had a bit of a, I have a bit of a work story, actually, from mm-hmm. this week. I have a few, actually, I guess I could tell because I just started a new library branch. Mm-hmm. Um, I've only been there like five days, but started at a library on the south side. It's my first time having a job on the south side besides, I, I did work at like the Little Italy Library for a while, which is like by UIC's campus. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's been interesting so far. But I had this odd experience where like this woman came to the library. She looked like, like in Art Ho, like she looked like she had dyed her hair orange, just wearing like cool clothes. She came up with a bunch of bags, looked a little bit homeless. She came to the library to print out crows. Then I realized it was someone I took art classes with when I was 13 oh. at like an arts nonprofit. Yeah. 
Yeah. Isn't it funny when you meet someone in one sphere of your life and that turns out to be the largest sphere of their life? Like, it feels like all my friends that I have from Hebrew school and like middle school, they are all like what I jokingly call like professionally Jewish, where they all either like work for Jewish like youth groups, non-governmental organizations, or they've made Aliyah and they live in Israel. Or like, it's just, I met them at, like, I thought Hebrew school was just like one thing we did. I also went to swim practice and I'm not in the Olympics. Like, yeah. it was just a thing. But yeah, so she was just artsy then, artsy now. Yeah, I mean, I am too. It, I guess it was just yeah. that like, someone my age, someone I knew from real life, mm-hmm. looked like someone I'd be friends with, but also looked homeless. It was a weird, it was a weird moment for me. I feel like that is, I mean, that is a classic thing. It's just like, you know, if you're going to be artsy, you have to like toe a line between looking like, you know, artsy homeless and genuinely homeless. But I feel like you can usually tell. There's like some little giveaway, yeah. like, was her skin fine? Was she? No, like, I could, t- I think she's having a rough life. Like, oh, okay. um, No, I think it, no, I, I don't, I don't know what's going on. I yeah. encouraged her to come back to the library. I want to yeah. see her. Because, uh-huh. like, there's this idea within the library science world that the opposite of, like, a risk factor is a protective factor. And libraries mm-hmm. are protective factors. Like, just the act of being in a library yeah. is, like, a positive effect on someone's life. It's just um, a constant positive, like, good. Yeah. Just kind of, wow. Because, yeah, I mean, as opposed to literally anything else you can be doing, you're in, yeah. like, <laughs> yeah. a structured environment so with, like, yeah. heating and fresh water and mm-hmm. bathrooms. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever it's heard good for people? You ever heard that bit um, that like urbanists and city planners and um, like justice advocates they all end up accidentally inventing libraries again? You ever heard that thing? So it's like people will come with this idea of like how do we serve the needs of this community? There should be like a central place where people can just come to and they don't need to buy anything and it's heated and there's running water and there's resources for them. You know, like uh, maybe there's going to be stuff they could loan for a little bit. They just basically independently arrive at what a library has been for, you know, a thousand years. But it's like, we look at it, it's like looking at the needs that we have and then just retroactively inventing a library. Yeah, I think the biggest difference between, like, a community center and a library would be, like, the availability of, like, exercise equipment. And the exercise equipment oftentimes comes with like a place that you can take showers, which mm-hmm. is also a very yeah, important thing yeah. uh, to cert- give people in the community. But okay, to circle back before we move on to other things, just back to the book I like brushed mm-hmm. over by Paul Fussell. Another thing he alluded to was that there's a bit of a binary between uniforms and costumes. Mm. Uniforms are for work, whereas costumes are for play. But the outfits we wear every day always fit between within this binary to varying degrees. So like right now I'm in in neither a costume or a uniform, Mm -hmm. but I'm wearing an outfit that like fits within society's idea of like what a man is. And Mm -hmm. you know, there's like different ways of looking at it, but I'm not like dressed up and going out. It's like, it it is, what I'm wearing is right now is closer to, I say a uniform than a costume. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's, it's a binary between it sounds like a binary between what you want to wear and what society asks you to wear. Is that also, am I misapplying that or? I think it's also just because like, do you, do you want to leave the house in Constantly. stuff that doesn't make sense to everyone? Yeah. It's like, and yeah, it, it's, there's a lot that comes wrapped up in the clothing that you wear mm-hmm. that's outside of your control. And like, 
I don't know. I wouldn't want to leave the house and like, I, I used to actually dress a lot more alternative than I do now, like in art school. Yeah. But then I went on a bunch of dates with guys where I got ghosted and I kind of toned it down. Um, <laughs> uh, there's yeah. a lot of there's a lot of factors that can go into getting ghosted. How did you arrive that it was your clothes? I don't know. I just, Not to make you insecure about other things or something like that. No, I don't know. It's just like... Well, if their eyes linger, if they're like, if they're making a face or something and not... No, it wasn't like that. I wasn't even dressed that crazy. It was, Mm. I don't know. It's just like you get ghosted 500 times. Like (laughs) at a certain point you start to wonder what the problem is. Yeah. So. Um, You ever wear overalls as an art kid? No, but you know what I did wear a lot? Um, Athletic mesh. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm. I was very into like, well, American Apparel, I worked at American Apparel up until I think halfway through I finished college and the American Apparel like towards the t- its tail end they had released like this very athletic uh, collection of sorts mm-hmm. where it was like athletic mesh yeah. and it was cool and yeah. I got like everything from that collection <laughs> pretty much I even had duplicates like there were certain shirts where I got them in like a small and a medium and I got a double because I got like a 50% yeah, discount, course, discount and I just yeah you were just planning for in case you ever ballooned inside or in size or you uh No, I've always been like kind of in between like a small and a medium, medium yeah. I guess. Mm-hmm. Or no, now I'm not really a small actually by yeah. like largest more. But even now it's like I always have to guess like, am I gonna fit the medium or the large? Mm-hmm. Um I go with largest more, but yeah. yeah, it's it's tricky with my body. It's it's never consistently one size. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We had joked leading up to this episode, this is going to be our gayest episode yet. Because um, it's like, we're going to touch on stuff that's, there's this thing of like with uniforms, like they, for men or women, they get turned into a schema in someone's head and they can often be like, you know, if there's anything that can be sexualized in it, it will be, you know? I mean, the role of like, like a nurse costume or something or the plumber coming by to your house, like these cultural archetypes get like spun into yeah. um, sexual archetypes. But I think that the, the binary between uniform and costume that Fussell kind of alludes to is, it makes me think that the costume is more feminine, mm. which in many ways it is. The and uniform I, being more masculine and the costume being more feminine. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. I yeah. think especially because of like, if you think of drag, drag is mm. like the apogee of um, yeah. femininity. Mm-hmm. And the idea behind drag is the look. Mm-hmm. You're familiar with the idea of the look, right? Roughly, but if you could explain it to my straight ass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, have you ever seen Paris is Burning, the movie? No, I've read the Wikipedia article for it. Uh, it's it's, it's worth watching. It's very yeah. good. Right. And so, Paris is Burning is this documentary that was done of the, like, Vogue and ballroom scene in New York City, I think in the 70s or 80s. Mm-hmm. And within it, they have an older idea of, like, what drag is, mm-hmm. or, like, a it's very different than what we think of now. Like they would have competitions where it's like, okay, you, uh, we're gonna have a competition where like you look, you dress up like an everyday kind of poor looking woman. And now we're gonna have one where you dress up like a luxurious like runway model. But then they'd have ones where it's like dress up like a business executive or dress up like a straight guy that's gonna beat people up. (laughs) They just have this broader idea of like, of drag. But Mm -hmm. yeah, the idea of the look is just sort of like a one time thing it's, I associate it a lot with like club kids, yeah. like Michael mm-hmm. Lillig and people yeah. like that. But yeah, in college when I was in art school, many of the art students there, 
they were kind of aspiring to be cool as a job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and one of the avenues a lot of them went to after graduating and also during school was like they would become drag queens or club kids. And like I was never really interested in the idea of the look because it never felt as genuine to me. Mm. At the time, I was more interested in like subcultures, which to me felt like a a template in which you could express like your genuine flavor as opposed to just like changing it up every day and keeping people people guessing. It's like if one night you're a cowboy (laughs) and the next you're an alien and the next you're a stripper. Like where where are you? You're like, yeah, you have no... They say like in comedy and stuff, like what's your point of view? Like what's your character that you want people to like understand? And yeah... I can see that. Oh, I guess that's, oh, man. I just feel so out of pocket talking about drag. Like, I, <laughs> I just feel yeah. like I can't do it justice. But, I've never liked drag myself. <laughs> um, I once won a drag competition. I guess I should mention that. Um, you dressed up in drag? Yeah, it was for a sorority. I, I used to be more cagey about it. I mean, I work in construction. You don't want to be, like, advertising that you do that and stuff. But, um I don't know, I've just gotten more confident in myself than who I am. And I'm already on a gay rugby team, you know, like might as well admit that I did drag. This was in college and it was for a sorority fundraiser. So maybe the straightest reason to do drag, you know, to do it for a yeah. sorority. But I won. You did um, it in a Rudy Giuliani way. Yes, yes. That was very straight when he did that. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. Fascinating man. Um, but yeah, I, what is it? My name was Crystal Light. That was the name I chose. I just came up with it. And I uh, lip synced to Total Eclipse of the Heart by Bonnie Tyler. Okay, that um, went farther than I expected. I yeah. thought you were just going to dress up, but you actually lip synced. I had a name, yeah. The <laughs> outfit, the girls just put that together for me and they did like the makeup and hair and stuff. But yeah, they gave me a wig because I've always had pretty short hair. And then I like threw the wig to the crowd in one part of the song. I felt like that's a thing you do. That felt like... I don't know. I was just, I was grasping for straws. I don't know, I don't know the language of drag to work in. Um, yeah. But. Yeah, there was a period that, like, I when I first saw Paris is Burning in high school, I was, like, super into it. I thought it was really cool. Mm-hmm. I even got one of my, like, English teachers to show in a class. No, <laughs> actually, I got like a different Nathan. No, I got, I two, like I got so... two English teachers to show in a class, actually. Um, <laughs> yeah. But wow. um, I don't know. I... I got, I outgrew that sort of mindset where I was like interested in subcultures mm-hmm. and I, I'm definitely like less interested in clothing now, but also part of that is just like, I, I guess it was like, there was a period in between like being a high school student where I could spend my entire like American apparel salary on clothing and like now when I'm making good money and like, mm-hmm. yeah, there was a period where I had to tone it back, but I don't know, maybe I could get back into clothing more than I yeah. am now. Mm-hmm. We had a clothing swap with our little friend group, and it was a big success. It felt yeah. very, like, nice. I don't know, I got rid of a lot of stuff I didn't fit anymore, and I got pieces that I know I'm going to, like, actually wear, just very, like, regular to apply pieces. Yeah, the, the clothing and book swap at my house last yeah. night, it was good. There were, like, 16 or 17 people. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, we're both wearing shirts that we got from it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it just it just works. Yeah. Um, yeah, so on the male angle of... Um, Uniforms. It definitely does seem like it's a, it is, seems like a male thing. Like, yeah, I know I mentioned like nurse uniforms and stuff, but yeah, it's just an idea that like men derive their worth from like labor, specifically like a lot of times the most immediate idea is manual labor. And that gets associated with like, if not like a required outfit, like construction is kind of a general outfit. You're wearing jeans, high visibility stuff, boots. It's not as rigid as a uniform as the McDonald's polo, you know, <laughs> like that is a, 
very rigid yeah. thing. But McDonald's polo, I think, isn't as iconic as the Burger King polo, though. <laughs> have you seen that one? No. Does it have? Doesn't it have like dark gray and? No, they have like um, all these stripes for like the colors of a cheeseburger. <laughs> I kind of like that it. That is so. That's like almost. We'll talk about this like more in this episode. But like the militarism behind a lot of uniforms. But something about the colors of a hamburger being like aestheticized and turned into like. It's like uh, flags. It's like vexillology where you choose these colors that represent things and you stylize them. It feels like it's like you're going into war for the hamburger. You, know, <laughs> you are going to like, like I wear the colors that represent the sacred ingredients and I shall like every day I do battle with the customer. I must say I do get fed in my algorithm a lot of videos of employees fighting with customers. Um, <laughs> yeah. I've never been to a Waffle House. <laughs> That's just, you know, I think maybe of all restaurants, it is the most associated yeah. with um, war between <laughs> worker and yeah. attendee. But yeah, on the topic of men, should we talk a bit about how like there is a crisis for men? I, I, I think I'd broadly agree. I don't know. Crisis makes it sound so urgent. I mean, I know a lot of guys who aren't doing well, but... I, I don't know. What's your take? So I think when I look at society, I see a general crisis. Uh, for me, the biggest source of news is Breaking Points. They're mm -hmm. like a podcast. I highly recommend them. And they oftentimes talk about things related to deaths of despair. Mm -hmm. That term is very useful. It refers to deaths in society due to suicides, drug overdoses or alcohol-related deaths. Mm -hmm. And all of those have gone up so much, mm -hmm. particularly amongst youth, particularly amongst men. And I do think that there are like particular crises that are hitting men harder, mm -hmm. like um, the opioid crisis, mm -hmm. gambling epidemic, and porn addiction. Those ones I think of as being like really, really- Specifically male. Specifically yeah. male, but yeah. yeah. Definitely gambling and porn addiction, yeah, uh -huh. I would say. Guys have that, that market cornered. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, our society is like not well though. I oftentimes like use this phrase when I look at things anime, which comes from anthropology. It was mm -hmm. uh, coined by um, Malinowski, who's one of the three most famous anthropologists. Mm -hmm. And it refers to basically like a breakdown society of like the rules that we need to follow. Mm -hmm. And I think we like, the boomers, you know, <laughs> they're sort of the start of like permissiveness in our society where like mm -hmm. they were told by their parents to pursue pleasure and like yeah. get what you want. And mm -hmm. there's this good book, The Culture of Narcissism by Christopher Lash, which mm -hmm. goes into that in detail. And I think that now like our generation is a little bit different, which we will probably get into this if we ever do do the, um, we're thinking of doing like a millennial nihilism episode eventually, mm -hmm. but yeah, I'm pretty pessimistic. <laughs> yeah, I, I am too, but I feel bad when I'm pessimistic. Um, yeah. I don't know. I just feel like I default to pessimism and I need to, like, I don't know, reason with myself to produce an optimism out of it. Yeah. I mean, I... <laughs> the I numbers guess... do look rough when it comes to... Deaths of despair is such a, like... I don't know when we started measuring that or when we realized, like, that all these seemingly disparate deaths are all part of a similar condition. Um, I forget who it was who wrote about this. Shit life syndrome or shit life disease. Um, he was some British guy and he was just talking about deaths of despair and people looking like, oh, why do we have 
all these rates of depression in these certain areas. Like this was when the understanding of like chemical imbalances was coming out. And so everyone was like, oh, we got to, why are there so many chemical imbalances in this one part? <laughs> yeah. And his, his like bucking against that was saying that like, it's very reasonable to be depressed if you're in a truly depressed area. If there are no like job opportunities or like meaningful things you can squeeze out of your life or opportunity to find like someone to settle down with and provide for them, like you should be sad. It's like a reasonable and rational thing. It would be be pretty delusional to not be depressed in that situation. Like, yeah, I don't know. I've always, that's been very striking to me. I think there is a biological component as well, but like, yeah, there's situations where it's very rational to be sad and like beaten up about it. And I think both of us as urbanists can, I definitely like think an element of the crisis men and the greater society faces due to the suburbanization of our society. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even for the boomers, as the root of all the social decay, in my opinion, <laughs> they grew up as the first generation to be raised in the suburbs. Mm-hmm. And they like clearly exhibited like emptiness. And then mm-hmm. they turned to like hippie culture and yeah. Eastern spirituality. Yeah, I always, it's interesting because the boomers did not build the first like ring of suburbs that was their parents' generation and maybe even a generation older when you think about the money, the developers, it's going to be people who aren't exactly, you know, childbearing age, but rather a chunk older. People who are in their 40s, in the 50s, you know, that yeah. generation. Um, but I always describe it like baby boomers are the generation to grow up in suburbs. There could have been an earlier generation. I'm speaking specifically about like my mom who was born in, let's see, 61. And her parents grew up in suburbs, but it was, the people were from small towns, but they were living in a suburb. So they took that small town communitarian like mentality and they just replicated it in a new environment, the car dependent suburb. But then the kids who were raised in that, they were like one generation removed from actual communities. Like they didn't have their parents to like guide them anymore and how to do these community things. So it was like a lost skill. So I think that things really kicked in when you get further and further from the original, like people who lived in functioning neighborhoods, yeah. once we're further and further away from that generation, like things get more and more fucked up. I've, this is pretty out of pocket, but I think that the emergence of like school shootings seem to emerge in the 80s and 90s when we're like truly getting like suburban kids raising suburban kids. Yeah. You know? Um, and when you look at where all these shootings happen and stuff, they are less often in urban areas. Oftentimes, an entire like the Aurora shooting or something in Colorado that's like a, you know, just a suburban development. I don't think there was much there in like the 1920s or anything. So often these single suburbs get then linked to their shooting tragedy. And like, if there was a school shooting in Chicago, what would we call it? You know? Yeah, we'd think of it as gang related. Yeah, we'd file it under (laughs) something else in our mind. We wouldn't file it under a school shooting. You know, but these towns, nothing else has happened there until they get a school shooting (laughs) and then like, Columbine, what were, they, what were they known for before their school shooting? I don't know. I could be entirely wrong on that. Maybe the generation cycles don't line up with what I'm saying, but yeah, yeah. cancel me if you wish. Um, yeah. Yeah. So for men who need a bit of purpose in their life, I do think that uniforms can offer something for them mm-hmm. because like going back to that quote, I guess, but it's important for people to be employed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is one yeah. of our a shared take that we have that's a little a little conservative, I'll admit it, that we they think there's a there's a dignity in work, you know. Yeah. Yeah. It's a way to exact change on the world. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's just it's something we've done since like even hunter gatherer times. There's you could use a different word for it, but it is work. It's generative work. Like I 
I think that there is something to be studied with universal basic income as like a stopgap measure until we like pre- until we start remanufacturing in America and we put um, this is my more luddite take if we put some controls on automation in order to artificially boost employment that's a something a niche belief of mine um, but I won't get too much into my schizo posting um, yeah where's it going with that of yeah there's a dignity in work and there's something about like I, maybe it's an older generation thing of like having a pride in the uniform you put on, you know. Yeah. Let's talk about the village people. Okay. Yeah, I guess now we're we're getting out of the like meta stuff. We'll get into just a bunch of like fun little topics. <laughs> okay. So the village people were very popular in like the seventies and eighties, and they sort of brought a sexualized macho take on all of these conventional uniforms. So. Within their group, there's like the cowboy, the construction worker, which I wrote in the docket is an electrician. It's not. It is a construction worker. Oh, just broadly a construction Um, worker. There's like a leather guy. There's like a chief, an army Mm -hmm. officer. And they came about in this time when I think you could be like an out and open person in society. But people were still pretty homophobic. It's surprising Mm -hmm. that this group got as popular as it did. It's crazy that in like... I think the YMCA, I don't, I'm speaking, I'm not 100% sure about this. I think the YMCA fought it at first, the song, and then they adopted it. I mean, by our yeah. time, the YMCA loves the song nowadays and they use it. I think it took them a second though, because it's Young Men's Christian Association originally. Yeah. It doesn't stand for that anymore. They like took that name out of it. It's like a, an orphaned acronym. It just stands for YMCA nowadays. Yeah. Which is interesting. Or the Y. Yeah, well, even they have a song too called like "In the Navy," and the Navy <laughs> wanted to use that in promotional materials, like they liked it. But yeah, the why, the village people they make me think of a quote from one of our other favorite podcasts, Red Scare. In it, Anna Kashian once said that it's every gay man's sexual fantasy to get beaten to death by a ripped working class guy. <laughs> <laughs> it is it is tongue in cheek, but I think she's speaking to something that. Now I know that my, my gay rugby team listens to this podcast, but none of them would dispute that. 100%. They've all told me how, like, they're very, like, they're attracted to, like, the high school bullies from back then. You know, they know in their higher brain that, like, that person was not kind to me and all that. But I think in our deeper lizard brain, there's, like, an attraction to, like, yeah. they could hurt me, um, and that's hot, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Um, I think you got to give straight men some credit. I think we have some interest in that, like... I don't know, like, oh, an army girl or something, or a really buff female athlete. Like, guys will be attracted to that. Um, but we, we, don't, we don't do it so naturally as the gay men do it. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that the appeal of, like, uniforms for men attracted to men is that they, the uniform comes with power. Mm-hmm. I mean, definitely, like, say, like, a soldier or a policeman. Some of the others within the YMCA, like, the leather guy oh, and the, the cowboy. Oh, sorry, within the uh, village people. You call oh, them sorry. the YMCA. <laughs> yeah, some of the other members within the village people, like, say, the cowboy mm-hmm. and the leather guy, those ones fit within the costume, yeah. mm-hmm. like, part Definitely. of the binary more so than the uniform mm-hmm. part. But I don't know. I guess I, in a way, am guilty of this, you know, from my American Apparel era when I started to really like sporty clothing. Mm-hmm. I don't think I've actually brought this up yet on this podcast or to you in general, but I had this really big project, a lifelong project for many years where I was changing how I dressed every year as a project. And it was, I called them cycles. So 
I would come up with an idea for a theme that was like reflective of my life. And then I would wear clothing that like fit within this idea. And it was sort of like I would create a subculture for myself mm -hmm. and then I would like wear that. A subculture of one. That's so cute. <laughs> yeah. But the themes were like neon, nautical, numerical, national, NASCAR, and night. <laughs> I think I got through like six. NASCAR was so out of the field there. I was, yeah. I, I like all the themes, each one. I was like, oh, wow. I, like, I was kind of imagining what I would do for each one if, if you gave me that like task. Yeah. Numerical, I like that one a lot. Working yeah. that in, like, I think it's fun when given yeah. a theme to f try and find the most like tenuous. Well, you know what? Uh, it was because I like wanted to wear primary colors and then I like, I screen printed all these shirts where I just put like sh shapes like triangles and circles and squares on these primary shirts. So I was, I was dressing like education for- Yeah, well, <laughs> so tangent on that. Um, what, did you make different colors for each shape? Like, would you no, have- No, it was, it was, the rule was, it was all primary and then like black and white. Because the Bauhaus believed that circles were blue, squares were red, triangles were yellow. They had a whole typology to this. They didn't oh yeah, I was mixing it up. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, I know you weren't a real Bauhaus guy. Yeah. But yeah, within, um, one, one of the thing about the cycles was that they all had to start with the letter N. Because my oh, name is whoa, Nathan. Yeah. <laughs> so you started running out and that's how you went yeah. NASCAR. <laughs> no, the NASCAR one lasted like two or three years. How? Nathan, wow. No, I started to like sputter out. I, I don't yeah, really- Yeah, no, how did it last that long? <laughs> like, yeah, no. What you can do with that? You don't watch NASCAR. <laughs> no, 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 it was just, I liked, racing stuff was in style around like yeah. 2016. Like I, I went to like a monster truck themed house yeah. party in college. Like people were into this stuff. And so okay. like 1991, that clothing brand we brought up in a prior yeah, episode. Yeah, yeah. I got a shirt from them, it fit within mm -hmm. it, you know? Yeah. yeah, that was what that was about, but. Okay, but of the cycles I had, national was like the most like men in uniform. Where basically like the national was, I was really into like the UN and camouflage. Oh, <laughs> interesting. Yeah. That's, and a, then that's I, a good abstract theme that seems daunting at first, then you realize how freeing it is actually. Yeah. That's a good one. But the cycles were so specific that yeah. like, this sounds way cooler than it was at times because I couldn't pull this off as well as like, I maybe could given unlimited time because, yeah. like, for example, the national one. That's I was limited like, budget. You were in high school, right? In college, no, high school was easy to mm -hmm. like do this. But then in college, that's where I don't know why it started to sputter out. It was expensive to like, yeah, replace the whole wardrobe you know, every you're, year. Yeah, it's every year. <laughs> yeah, it's also like I'm not a consumer like that now. But mm -hmm. anyway, the um, the national one. Another thing I wanted to do is get like clothing that had like a bunch of little flags on it, which yeah. I'm sure rings a bell for you and rings a bell for everyone. Cause like you see it sometimes, mm -hmm. like you'll see. That's a very nautical thing as well. Yeah. There's the lots of little flags. A common like prep thing is to wear a surcingle belt, which is like a canvas webbing belt. And then you'll put little nautical flags on it. You know, the different ones that mean all these things. Yeah, that's, that's a thing. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, um, I fell prey to the men in uniform allure mm -hmm. and uh, <laughs> I was walking around downtown Chicago in like camo pants for a while yeah. and uh, I probably shouldn't have done that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. In, uh, in terms of sporting wear, I don't wear too much like sporty stuff besides when I go to the gym. It's just one of my weird things of like, if I'm not doing something physically active, why would I like wear sneakers? I didn't start wearing rugby shirts until I played rugby. 
I kind of have a weird thing about like authenticity. I don't go insane with it. Like I'll never wear a polo shirt because I don't wear polo, because I don't play polo. I'm not that far with it. But rugby just seemed like, I was like, ah, it's not my thing until I did it. With military surplus stuff, I had, I started buying it. I'm like, oh, this stuff is great and it's cheap and it fits me. And then I'd have a weird thing about like, hmm, I'm not serving in the military. Like, am I stealing a little bit of valor? Um, but my dad served in the military and he died in the military. So I think that gives me full right to like <laughs> inherit his right to wear military stuff. And lots of, I think I'll, I can talk about this yeah. a bit later. A lot of, I like, mean, there's also military downstream. surplus stores. Yeah. It's like, it's not like the US government is like, makes it seem like we're not supposed to be wearing this stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I once bought a, like, I was at a military surplus store and there was this great, like, lightweight blue jacket, but it had a German flag on the upper arm. And I was like, oh, I'll buy this, but then I'll like just, you know, seam rip the uh, flag off. And I wore it to class one day and some weird kid I already didn't like walked up to me after and he was like, oh, I like your jacket. Uh, Deutschland shall rise again. And I was like, what the fuck? (laughs) I didn't know I was Jewish. Um, But still, like, I don't even think you can say that in Germany. I'm pretty sure that's what he said, which is sounds very similar to Deutschland über alles, which is Germany overall. Which, yeah. was, which sounds like a Nazi thing, which it was. It was used by them, but it started as a German unification thing in the 1800s. They're like Deutschland over, you know, yeah. all the little tiny principalities Yeah, and the stuff. unification of the Holy Roman Empire. <laughs> no, this is, or this no, that, that was later. later. That was earlier. Yeah, yeah, that was earlier, yeah. This was like the yeah. creation of the modern state of Germany, but then it got retooled. But anyway, I was just like, I don't care if I don't have a seam ripper. I just took a knife <laughs> and I just like cut off the logo. And I was like, God, I got fucking neo-Nazis like flocking to me. <laughs> um, so within the village people, do you have a favorite member? Uh, I'm just going to go with the construction guy. Um, yeah. Because that's, that's what I wear. And I like older construction wear. I think that like what people wear nowadays nowadays makes sense. Like high visibility shirts are what you see typical union construction guys in that's safer than the old construction wear, which was like a blue chambray shirt over a white crew neck. You know, that was the standard thing. But I like the classic look more as I do with everything. Right now I'm wearing like a waffle knit thermal and then I have like a chamois material work shirt over it. And I think that was the high point of construction fashion. Skinny jeans are for some reason worn a lot on construction sites. I don't know what that is. Um, And present day? Present day. They're still wearing skinny jeans. I see them all the time on my job sites. Even older guys, well into their 40s and 50s. Okay. These can't um, be comfortable to work in. Not to to generalize, but is it... Latinos wearing them? It is Latinos wearing them, yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. I, I feel like that's just, like, how trends, like, globally mm-hmm. take longer to, like, yeah. uh, spread, you know? Mm-hmm. So, like, te- skinny jeans were in here 10 years ago. Yeah. Maybe, like, it's just because they're just yeah. learning about them there. But. Uh-huh. And then, like, the typical, like, white union construction guy in Chicago construction is not going to wear skinny stuff. He's going to wear it looser. Definitely. They never would have worn those in their life. Yeah, uh, no, they, there's, <laughs> you want to talk about homophobia and stuff, that's all wrapped up in there. Um, yeah. But yeah, also Polish guys wear skinnier jeans too, I've noticed yeah. as well. Um, but yeah, they, they like it. But yeah, in the village people, my favorite member, I think upon starting the episode, was the cowboy. Mm-hmm. But I think it's now the construction worker. I find mm-hmm. mustaches hot, so. Um, <laughs> but no, I, I also have always liked hard hats, but... Yeah, those are the only two in the group that I'm, like, attracted to. The other one's, like, it's too silly. I'm yeah, like, yeah. yeah, you can't, like, suspend your disbelief 
a bit, you know? Yeah. It's like, but the other ones you can reasonably be like, oh yeah, that's a type of person. I'm attracted to that. But like a Native American chief, that's pretty <laughs> fucking bizarre. Um, but yeah. yeah. You put in here the um, Space Force uniforms. I forgotten about the Space Force. Um, that it was, still yeah, exists. Trump era thing, yeah. Yeah, um, it's like a legitimate branch of the military that was talked about being formed for a long time prior to mm -hmm. Trump. Yeah. And other countries have had branches of their own mm -hmm. space forces for a long time. And what they deal with apparently is like sort of cybersecurity-esque related to like satellite communications. There's this movie that just came out on Netflix. What was the name of it? It's, um, it's called Leave the World Behind. Have you seen that? No. It was like the top Netflix film a week or two ago. Oh. But it's sort of like an apocalyptic film. What happens in it is like um, an unknown country attacks the United States. Uh, it might be a group of countries, they never clarify. Mm -hmm. But all this stuff starts happening, like these Teslas start self-driving and clogging roadways because like mm -hmm. satellites are controlling yeah. them and they like pile up on highways and... Um, Shut down infrastructure and stuff. Yeah. yeah. The dumbest part of the movie, in my opinion, was that there's this ultrasonic weapon that's used over huge areas that like causes people's teeth to fall out. It was like Havana syndrome. Oh yeah, but big Havana syndrome. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm of the opinion that Havana syndrome was fake. Um, oh, you think it was like a psychosomatic thing? Yeah. What? It was, I gotta read more about that. I really yeah. thought the Ruskies were up to something with that. No, I don't know. I, I'm not like a Russiagate person. I, I don't. <laughs> it, I, I think maybe it's catching a stray from Russiagate. Like Russians can do multiple things. Like just because Russiagate was a little overblown doesn't mean that there wasn't like, a, yeah. you know, Havana syndrome. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that movie helped me realize like what the Space Force sort of does. Yeah. Um, I like the idea of like, yeah, protecting our satellites and our infrastructure in space. I am. <laughs> I am lightly anti manga and anime. I think it's it's. Yeah. I think it it we're talking about like crisis of masculinity. I think I think that manga and anime are involved in that. I'm just gonna say that, and not elaborate. Um, but I read a really good one that was hard science fiction called Planets. It's like that's how it's spelled with two e's. And the idea is that like protecting satellites by collecting space junk becomes this like lucrative but extremely dangerous job that starts to attract kind of like roughneck types and it's a very like unglamorous but important thing and it just follows a character who does that and I thought it was very I like I like grounded sci-fi more than like high sci-fi with like aliens and stuff aliens are fun but I, I think you can bring a pretty interesting world out of the idea of just like humans going out into space and doing the classic kind of human stuff that we do, extractive resources, setting up governments, oppressing each other, like that can fuel a pretty good story on its own without even introducing aliens. Yeah, and then on the space roughneck thing, uh, my movie recommendation that I'm gonna give is a movie made in 2001, released in 2005, The American Astronaut. It's like a one-man show kind of passion project of this musician and filmmaker that it's shot in black and white, and the idea is that, yeah, all, like, astronaut, being an astronaut becomes a very, like, dirty and ugly profession, like cowboys. Um, and so it's just all these, like, ne'er-do-wells. Um, but it's very, like, surreal and dreamlike, and I don't want to spoil anything else. But, yeah, go give it a watch if you can find it online somewhere. I'm pretty sure it's free. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm sold. I, I pretty much only watch movies that, like, have some sort of fantasy element. But yeah, on the uniforms themselves, what do you think of the Space Force uniforms? 
I think it's a tricky like setup. Like, okay, like make a, <laughs> we haven't added a branch of the military since the Air Force. That I guess is in living memory, but we didn't know what like an Air Force uniform would look like, you know, but with Space Force uniforms, like culture has hopped ahead of reality in this. We have too many like fictional space uniforms in our public consciousness that you need, you can't ignore them because you might actually replicate them, you know? And so you need to kind of know about them, but not be too similar to any of them. They did end up being pretty similar to S Star Trek is kind of the take of it, but that's, yeah. like, how can that not happen? Like, Star Trek took yeah. naval uniforms and... Well, well the logo them. of the Space Force is eerily similar to the Star it's Trek It's got, like, an arch emblem. kind of a yeah. thing to it. Yeah, they, they could have done a little better on that. I, I think the uniforms themselves are a bit more Star Wars-esque than... Um, I mean, I'm not that familiar with Star yeah. Trek, but yeah, when I see the the Space Force uniforms, they make me think a little bit more about um, Star Wars. Yeah, they have like a semi-stand collar, like kind of a Mandarin-esque stand collar, but then it's cut in a very open, interesting way. Yeah, and it, I think there's some asymmetrical elements to it, which that reminds me of Star Wars. You really got to watch out for that because that's like the evil empire. Like you have to stay... I think the way they arrived... Most space stuff comes from naval, most like sci-fi stuff about ships will borrow more from Navy terminology. But for an Air Force kid like myself, Stargate was always our favorite because that one was based on like the Air Force. In yeah. that show, the idea is that the Air Force are the ones who make first contact and they set up the whole kind of world for dealing with like teleportation. And so oh, like everyone's wearing like classic Air Force jumpsuits. Um, and so my family like binge watched all of that show yeah. on DVD back in the day. Um, uniforms as privilege and uniforms as punishment. Yeah. Yeah. So uniforms generally are a good thing. Mm -hmm. uh, they infer, they imply someone is working, mm -hmm. but you can also be put in a uniform and made forced to wear orange <laughs> if you are sent to prison. Yeah. So uh, there is like this certain way that like um, uniforms can be meant to be demeaning. Mm -hmm. I myself actually had a school uniform when I was like a CPS elementary student, um, so a Chicago public school student. Um, and at the time, I went to a school that like wasn't too bad, but we were coming out of the 90s and there were still concerns about gangs. Yeah. So we weren't allowed to wear like any colors. It was mm -hmm. like we could wear white or navy and then mm -hmm. blue jeans. Yeah. Um, and so we were like, a, like pretty much every day I'd wear like a white shirt and blue jeans. And it just always felt, like, embarrassing. I couldn't wear, like, blue jeans until, like, 10 years later. Mm, wow. Yeah, I think it's... Yeah, we had them in Las Vegas. Um, we I never had them, but it felt like every other school. Like, it felt like the schools I went to were the exception. I went to, like, magnet schools, so there was more trust in the kids, <laughs> basically. Yeah. And this is where it comes from. It comes from a place of mistrust um, and lack of confidence in these kids. But it's, like... You know, if schools don't have any tools to deal with the root causes of crime, criminality, delinquency, and all that, they just change what they they change what they can, which is changing what the kids wear. Yeah. I think maybe the idea is that like you you know dress kids like this, like they can't you know signal gang allegiances or anything, but also like you're less likely to like mess around after school if you're in this very obvious indicator that you're from a bad school is like what it meant in Las Vegas. Like if you wore those uniforms, you're either at a very good Catholic school or you're from a like bad school. And so I think it would maybe pressure kids like, geez, I just want to go home and change into my like real human clothes and not my like <laughs> uniform. Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. I sometimes see critiques where 
people say that the American public school system conditions people for like low wage work and like yeah. prison and things like that. Because the uniformity of things, I think people sort of start to act out in different ways. We can segue this into the conversation on um, deindividuation. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I people do accuse American schools of doing that, but like every school is charged with making citizens out of people, you know, and that's always just going to reflect whatever the like nearest. When you reach for the idea of what a citizen should look like, like that's just what you're going to force on kids. But also, a lot of school is wrapped up in some pretty high-minded kind of academic things. So you're building this well-rounded thinking person. I don't know. I felt like critical thinking was always like asked for in um, school growing up. Yes, obedience was asked for in behavior, but like creative thinking was also asked for. But I think that's a school by school thing. I think I was yeah. just lucky in the ones I went to. Um, I, I think it's important for people to have like some means of expressing yourself even within a uniform template. So one of the ways that, for example, at like my school growing up, like you could express individuality was through like jewelry or belts or your shoes. Yeah. And so those became really important. Like when I was a student, like around like 2007, 2008, there were those belts that had those like studs. Do you know what yeah, I'm talking uh, about? Yeah, like not sharp studs. Yeah, they're like a pyramid studs. Yeah, yeah, those are really popular. Oh, yeah. Uh -huh. um, We're the same age. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. was big there, too. But yeah, even for people in the military, though, they find a way to um, express their individuality through tattoos. Yeah. Which those serve a bit of a function in that, like, if the soldier is blown up, their body parts can be identified yeah. more easily. But mm -hmm. it's also like, it says something because I think there's this statistic that, like, um, let me find it. There's this statistic that 92% uh, of Marines have tattoos. Yeah. It's mm -hmm. like for a reason. <laughs> yeah. It's, it, people have like a, it's one of those, you know, oft quoted cultural constants where like even hunter-gatherer societies or places all across the world have these similar traits. And one of them is self-ornamentation. You know, that you have some way to, to decorate your body. And it feels like everyone has a, this is, I'm oversimplifying, but it feels like everyone has a need, like a net need to change their body and ornament it. And if you restrict people in some ways, they'll express it in others. So if you tamp down on it clothing-wise, then it's going to come out in people's shoes and belts more so than if they were given full range over their dress. Like, it focuses yeah. on those areas. Yeah, for people in, like, um, pre-developed societies, they, they have clothing and garments to varying degrees, but it's not like us today <laughs> yeah. in, like, you know, full piece of clothing. It's like, mm -hmm. it was probably easier and more practical to just like pierce your ears or yeah. modify your body mm -hmm. as opposed to like wearing a shirt or something. Yeah. But it's also climate dependent. Like if it's yeah. it like, you know, in the, in the Amazon, if it's not reasonable to wear more than a loincloth, but you still have this <laughs> desire to like, you yeah. know, decorate yourself. And so that's where yeah. body paint and body modification and stuff comes in. Yeah. Um, but the body modification you see in those egalitarian societies in like uncontacted tribes mm -hmm. in the Amazon, they like the modification is for uniformity though. Like yeah, to identify that you are of this tribe and not the yeah. other. Yeah. And it's usually part of like um, some sort of like coming of age ritual where it's like, okay, you just turned twelve, we're gonna cut out your bottom row of teeth. <laughs> Which yeah. does happen and is shocking. I would not want to do that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean there's a lot of cultures that do circumcision at thirteen, you know, like the point yeah. is the pain. You know, like in Western society, yeah. we're like, no, but you like, do, do, what, do you walk around showing it off? Like, I, I'm 13 yeah. now, I'm a man. I don't know. Well, like, in, yeah, in Turkey, like, 
you get your, I think my ex was telling me this, that like you get circumcised when you're like 10 or 13 or something. And then they put them in this garment that's like a very loose pants basically. Like, cause it's nice. It's like, you know, not gonna chafe or anything. But the boys walk around with like a certain like swag and pride. Cause they're just like, yeah, I'm a man in the community now. It's no big deal. Like, <laughs> and they're walking around in these like pants that clearly signal that. Um, yeah. But yeah, I should have researched that before going to that spiel, but hopefully that's true. <laughs> Again, if not, yell at me. Um, <laughs> yeah, you were saying about, like, with those modifications, it shows that you're a member of one tribe, but, like, oftentimes a piece of clothing can signify that you are a part of a group and an individual, like, in two different ways. Like, a lot of menswear is about tiny details and things. So, like, the fact that you're, you know, wearing a dress shirt signifies, sig- signifies one thing, but then... And you have to wear a dress shirt, and then so you personalize your cufflinks, and that shows a personal thing about you. Like, uh, in with men's rings, uh, I forget which finger is which, but one is supposed to signify something about like an organization you belong to or a community. Another one reflects something about your family. Another one reflects something personal to you. Like we kind of have these slots available for personalization and also yeah. for group membership. Yeah, those are definitely important still. So, okay. So to circle back to de-individuation, which I mentioned a few minutes ago, de-individuation is a psychological effect that I learned about through a Gawker article. Gawker has been shut down for many years. uh, And they once did this expose on this very um, infamous Redditor called Violent Acres, who was the creator and like head mod of a bunch of like really disturbing communities like with jailbait in the title. Um, I don't want to talk about Mm -hmm. what that entailed. And Reddit back in the day was like, I actually, um, I refused to be on it for many years because they used to have like subreddits that involved people like dying and you could watch people like being killed. And Mm, it was a wild um, west back then. Yeah, I'm like a free speech absolutist, but I don't believe in like the free circulation of images. I think that Mm -hmm. like, we need to, I mean, particularly images of death, like yeah. we need to be very careful about like mm-hmm. when we show them and to not be desensitized by yeah. them. But this expose, they talked about like this person who had done all these horrible things, but it went steps further, which in a really, really good way. And they talked about like the psychological effect where like if the things you use to identify yourself with are taken away, People do horrible things. <laughs> yeah. Um, Anonymity, yeah. Yeah. It's a hard one. I'm going to stumble over that word too. <laughs> yeah. 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 Anonymity is one way that de-individuation occurs. But another is just like, uh, an example is the Stanford prison experiment where mm-hmm. they took like Stanford college students and they made them dress up in like pretty generic uniforms that they weren't mm-hmm. wearing like badges or anything. They just like made them wear sunglasses and khakis and stuff yeah. and then... They ended up like pretty much abusing like yeah, fellow college students. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. And so I think about like de-individuation quite a lot as a way to like explain people's actions because people think they're in control, but people like I mean, you know, if you're like in a crowd and one person throws a brick <laughs> through a window, um, that person's crazy. But then if like all the other people around you start to break stuff too, it's like, yeah. they're kind of just like following along. Yeah. Like there are like psychological things beyond just like us making individual choices. Yeah. At a summer camp, we'd sometimes do like a week long competition. We kind of got away from these for reasons I think I'll arrive at. Um, 
But when you give kids like, all right, we have red team and blue team, like we'll do like the Wizarding Cup kind of deal, like to borrow from Harry Potter. Like we'd have different teams, they get points throughout the week. And then you would always have to crack down on kids being like stupid blues and like <laughs> spit on each other and like prank each other. They start to like, like very quickly within the span of a week, they form a civilization, Lord of the Flies-esque, and they like have an in-group and an out-group and they have like stereotypes about what each group is like. It's very like, a, they yeah. build it so quickly. Like, I don't know, people build societies at like an alarming rate is what I'd say. <laughs> like yeah. we, we crave it, we crave the structure. Yeah, no, there was this study like that that was um, cited by Jonathan Haidt in his book, The Righteous Mind, which I don't really remember the details, but it was like that, but it was outside of a camp. It was like a weeks-long experiment where they made, like, different tribes of children. And, yeah, the the people facilitating had to, like, stop them basically from killing each other by the end of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, those are so grim. I try not to, like, think about it, that we're just, like, innately these, like, tribalistic things. <laughs> I hope yeah. we're not. Um, yeah, but know. people crave it at the same time. Yeah. I mean... People want to belong. It's part of why we're, like, having all these deaths of despair. It's yeah. like people don't have, like, a way to feel like they're wanted. Yeah, yeah it's in group environments. Um, yeah, in terms of, like, de-individuation, this came up a lot, like, being in a fraternity. Because we'd talk about, you know, hazing. And we're, we were all, like, broadly anti-hazing, but it was always hard to define the definition of it. Um, we always drew a pretty strong line, I'd say, but... Um, I remember hearing something really good from a guy who was in our fraternity, but also in the military. You know, he was going right on to the military after college. He would have to leave for, like, all of his summer and winter breaks were just spent at, like, military training. He had a different, like, track in life from the rest of us. And he said that, like, yeah, hazing makes sense in the military because you want to break people down into these predictable things that do the same thing every time. They're very, like, you know, you know that under pressure you'll do the same thing. Like, people need to be thinking as one. They need to erase those differences between each other. And he says, like, why would that possibly be the goal of a fraternity? Like, isn't the idea that we're bringing together a diverse group of guys who can all help each other, like, with cheap housing and, uh, you know, studying together and having fun? Like, those are not, those are different from the goals of the military. Like, hazing can make sense in one situation, but it's antithetical to, like, what we want to do as a fraternity. Like, yes, a little bit of stress can make people bond, but it's so diminishing in its returns. Like, you don't want to, like, turn people into these, like, copy-paste versions of each other. I mean, people want a vehicle in which to excuse antisocial behavior. Not meaning, like, I'm not socializing, but, like, the Mm -hmm. clinical definition of antisocial. But, like, you probably don't want me to bring this up, but, Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the ways that that happens is, like, (laughs) frat guys doing gay stuff. It's like... (laughs) Because they're kind of curious, but they don't, like, they, they're, not, they're not just going to do it. They need an excuse. Yeah. Uh-huh. No, that's, that's fair for you to bring up. That is a thing. Yeah, people need, like, a, yeah. I was thinking more of just, like, the true terrible, like, hazing deaths and stuff. Like, when you yeah. look at the perpetrator of it, you're like, oh, this person always needed an outlet. Like, they... <laughs> did, did I ever tell you about the time I, I had a coworker at one of my jobs where, like, I thought he was cute, and I Googled him, and then I found that he was involved in hazing deaths for oh. a rat. Oh, Jesus. I never told you? No. <laughs> John Hamm. John Hamm nearly killed a kid in college. Wait. Um, He's the actor from Mad Men. I thought he Stone did. Draper. I thought it happened. No, no, no The kid didn't okay. die. No, it was very close. Yeah, no, um, that's like a very high-T thing to be involved in. It's like... <laughs> <laughs> nearly killing another a friend yeah. of yours is very high-T. <laughs> yeah, but no, this, this guy that I was working with, um, I, I looked him up in like... 
he had been in the military and after this death had happened, but it seems like he was in school. He, he killed someone. I think he had to go to jail maybe or he's on probation, but he, his only like option afterwards seemed to be the military and then he became yeah. a soldier. Um, oh, that's so sad because yeah. it's just like, well, I've already killed before, so that's, <laughs> might as well put me to use. I'll do it again, but this time for like, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, funding for school and a support system. Yeah, no, it's sad. Um, I wish stuff like that never happened. Mm-hmm. I myself, as I mentioned before, I've never drank an alcohol. It's an interesting life path to choose to be willing to be like the one to um, just in any social environment be like, I don't want to fit in, I'm fine. Yeah, you'll always um, be standing out. It's hard. It's yeah, like, no, I don't think people yeah. realize it. Yeah, I've done, like, stretches where, like, you know, let's do a reset, Joseph, and I, like, not drink for a bit. Um, and it's like, oh, wow, you have to say no to a lot of things. You don't realize how easy it is to say yes to things. Like, it takes this, like, active effort to do it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, staying on the military thing, you and I both have an interest in chainmail epaulets. Epaulets? Epaulets? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, well, I don't. I don't know how to pronounce that, but mm-hmm. I. Um, I'm a chainmail artist. Mm-hmm. I, that's one of my main like metalworking practices. I did some chainmail last night actually, at the clothing swap because someone had a coat where the zipper broke and I replaced it really quickly. It sounds cool because it was. It came out <laughs> really well. And um, yeah, so chainmail epaulets they emerged at this time period where like, it was like so when, an epaulette first is on the shoulder. For people, right? Yeah. yeah, it's on the shoulders. They're kind of like shoulder pads, but you can see them. Like shoulder pads for like business women in the eighties were underneath <laughs> yeah. the suit. Yeah, yeah, underneath. This it is like external, on the top. Like yeah. you can see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, they emerged at this time when I think that guns still had bayonets, and so mm-hmm. um, shoulders for people in combat. You don't want to get hit there. You you can bleed a lot. Like mm-hmm. um, for Romans, actually, like one of the ways they would execute people was like a sword through the collarbone, like from above. Um, oh, that's a rough one. You yeah. think about that angle. You think about stabbing someone in the heart or something, but yeah, no. Oh, that's a straight shot down. Yeah, because whole... it pierces through so many organs. Jeez. And like there's no muscle really yeah. stopping it. I mean, oh. yeah, not a pleasant thing to think <laughs> about. But um, you, you need to protect people's shoulders. Yeah. Like you'll notice on armor that usually there's like a bit more padding. Yeah, and even uh, like NFL stuff, like it's always the shoulders yeah. that people pad first. Yeah, that's real. Yeah, but chainmail epaulets just look cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I like any kind of like uh, vestigial bit of earlier military history that gets like carried through because like military technology nowadays is insane. We have like night vision cameras and drones that seek you out and kill you and like it is truly a technological front. But we have all these things that are like very old, you know, just like even guys wearing swords in ceremonial dress is just very cool and interesting. I, because yeah, the military is so old. Um, on the subject of like the kind of lifespan of uniforms, like ideas like the police are pretty interesting, are pretty young. You know, this got, this got brought up in like George Floyd. Everyone's like, you know, police have only been around since the 1800s. And it's true. Like prisons yeah. have been around for a while. The military has been around for a while. Police are a pretty modern invention. And so the military often does like, you know, in order to gain the respect of people, it calls back to its history. And not just the history of that country, it calls back to like previous countries, previous civilizations. Like, I mean, the like Nazi salute was the Roman salute. Like you always kind of reach back further and further to say that like the military is powerful. That's why you should listen to it. But it's also old and it's older than you and it will keep on going. It'll endure beyond you. 
Yeah. Yeah. Another really old symbol too is like um, the eagle that we use on crests in the United States. The Roman eagle, the aquila, that was like used as the main symbol of the Roman military. Mm. Yeah. Benjamin Franklin wanted it to be a turkey because <laughs> those are very like endemic to the U.S. And they're, they're yeah. like hard fighting birds too. Um, and so we thought that really represented it. But yeah, that would have been very... All of the, all the animals we use to like symbolize things in the United States were so silly, like <laughs> elephants for Republicans and donkeys yeah. for Democrats. Snakes for freedom. Don't tread <laughs> on me. Um, yeah. But the turkey, while it didn't get to be like the national, you know, bird, um, it did get to like, you know, get starring role in Thanksgiving. So that feels like a good consolation prize, you know, that it's like seen yeah. as, it's, it is an American symbol of like bounty and... Yeah. Uh, family and togetherness. You, you know, it's a really interesting American symbol that people don't know about. Mm. Mammoths. What? So, um, yeah, I there's this very good essay I once read on this. So basically, there was a time actually when people didn't realize extinction was possible. Mm. When they would find bones, the assumption that people would have from fossils was like, must be somewhere. Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. It's not here, but we don't know the whole world. Yeah. Like, but it's back when we were, there were still like unexplored yeah. corners, so like it would be very logical to assume that, yeah. Yeah, but like the first animal that people kind of realized was extinct was the mastodon, and the mastodon they realized like, um, well, they thought the same thing at first, like, oh, it must be somewhere, but then they thought it was the animal that went extinct. <laughs> the only one? Yeah, they were like, this, this is the yeah. one that yeah. like it's no longer here. Yeah, everything else we've got, <laughs> we've got it all down. Yeah, yeah. but then. Um, in the U.S., they started to find mammoth bones pretty early because, like, they're everywhere. There's a yeah. lot of them. Mm -hmm. But um, they started to think, like, oh, the, ma the mammoth must be out west. Um, <laughs> oh, the search for the and mammoth. And the mammoth was really important because the bones were massive. In yeah. um, Europe at the time, they were saying that, like, they were saying that America was inferior because the animals and, and the flora and the fauna were smaller. Yeah, they were like, scrappier. There are all of these like pseudoscientific yeah. reports coming out of Europe where they were like, <laughs> yeah. oh yeah, Our the badger fox. is large and proud. <laughs> Their badger, small, weak. Yeah. Like, <laughs> no, they'd literally be like saying that the average weight of animals there was bigger. <laughs> I remember seeing that. I don't know how um, to read that same thing, yeah. Even though like the megafauna, we have more megafauna yeah, we, here. We, had they not found the moose yet? Like that must have been like, there's nothing in... Uh, Europe that compares to that. I think their yeah, yeah. wildlife is dinky. I mean, they have. I mean, in terms of megafauna in Europe, they have like the musk ox. Yeah. But um, anyway, so so the mammoth was used as a symbol of like, oh no no no, we have the biggest animal. It's over yeah, here. Yeah. We haven't found uh, we it haven't yet. found it yet, <laughs> but it's real. But boy, when we yeah. do, you guys will be yeah yeah. But even I think at like the World's Columbian Exposition, like the mammoth was used as an American symbol. Oh. Um, it took them a while to realize it didn't exist, but yeah. <laughs> I, I think you could really read into that and be just like, oh, wow. It's this thing we're constantly searching for as we go west and we never find it. And so it gets like forgotten about. You know, America does set these very like, we're a very forward thinking country and there's always prosperity behind the corner. The future should always be continuously improving. Yeah. yeah. I think it's a very fitting um, symbol for America. Yeah. Um, back to like military stuff that I just find cool. I've always liked uh, knights and chivalry and stuff. Uh, I should commission a full like chainmail garb from you someday. I think that'd make me really happy. That'd be too much work. Yeah, I'm sorry. I know, um. but I'll, I'll pay for your time. <laughs> um, I, I, I've said this like if I hit the lottery, like obviously I'm going to like you know save tons of it and invest it and then you know buy property, yada, all that. But one thing I will 100% do within the first month is buy a custom suit of armor for myself because I think that would be so much fun. I think it. 
would truly yeah. be a blast. Um, it's like, of course, hypocritical for me. Like, I don't know, knights, cowboys, samurai are all these like cool roles we look back to and we're like, oh man, I would have been those, you know, if I was in that situation. Obviously, no, like my family at that time was like Jewish peasants in like <laughs> Poland. Like you had to be Christian to be a knight. The idea of a knight was very wrapped up in Christianity. Um, so no, I would not have been one, but it's just <laughs> cool to imagine. Yeah. Oh, no, you I, would look at it as a knight. You should do that sometime. I, I, I like to think so. I, people, I think when I'm hanging out, I'm like, you do have a knightly air, air yeah. Joseph. I do like you, to think so. Have you seen Game of Thrones? Yes. I'm sad to say I've seen part of it because, like, it's so transgressive. I hated it after. <laughs> I mean, I kind of hated it from the beginning. Boo. But I got, like, five or so seasons through. But do you remember that, like, Jamie? one female knight? Oh, <laughs> yeah. The blonde the, one? The actress's name is Gwen something. But, yeah, yeah. the female knight, yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. Like, I'm, in my head, there was just a comparison between the two of you. Oh, no, that's fair. <laughs> no, I, I think she was badass. We're both the same height. So that's yeah. literally that actress is, like, 6'2", six, 6'3". Six, yeah. Uh, no, she was badass. Um, oh, yeah, and then on, this is, I don't even know, we should probably edit this whole thing out, but this is just a little fixation of mine. This is a connection between the Jewish thing, military thing, medieval knights, um, but I'm fascinated by Hasidic Jews. I just think they're really interesting that they're still sticking to it, you know, like the closest hewing to, you know, whatever original Judaism is, but they're known for their very, like, long black garments that they wear. And so what they're doing, they started wearing that in the 1800s, to mimic like this uh, military caste that was in power in Poland, Lithuania, because that's where Jews were at the time as well. Um, and so we were like, you know, we are God's people, we are like goodly, and so we're just as good as these people who were really in high esteem at the time. They had military power, but were also kind of an intelligentsia too. They, they ascribed a lot of very good values to themselves. They had, must have had great PR people. But these people, the Zachta, Lord knows how you pronounce that, they, would, they believed these like noblemen believed that they traced their genes to the ancient um, Sumerians, not Sumerians, Sarmatians, the Iranian Sarmatians. These Polish guys convinced themselves that they were actually Iranian Sarmatians. And their next level of belief on that was that the Sarmatians themselves were from the Turkic steppes, you know, the people who eventually conquered Turkey, the Anatolian Peninsula and all that. And so in 2023, Hasidic Jews are addressing as the Polish-Lithuanian nobility of the 1700s who believe that they were descended from Iranians who were actually Turkic uh, nomadic invaders. And it's just very strange. But if you ask, no Hasidic Jew knows about this stuff. They're not really very concerned in secular history. <laughs> They're not um, listening to fashion history podcasts. They don't listen to our podcast. We have no <laughs> listeners in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. <laughs> East Williamsburg. Yeah. That's the very Jewish part, not the cool part, um, I believe. Yeah, yeah and I, some, I once went to like a meatball restaurant in Williamsburg, and I think I saw a fair amount of um, Hasidic yeah. Jews over there. Yeah, that's why I was so like undervalued as a neighborhood for a while, and the, you know the hipsters, quote unquote, moved in yeah. was because like no one wanted to live around. It's the Satmar sect yeah. of Hasidic Judaism over there. Also, New Yorkers don't want to leave off the G line. You oh. know about the G line? No, it's the only line um, in New York that doesn't pass through Manhattan. So like, uh, oh, it's the one yeah. that goes from Queens to Brooklyn. Yeah, oh. I don't know why like New Yorkers love to have such like an essentialist idea of their city, yeah. where like, oh yes, like we live in Manhattan and like, and there's people in Jersey Staten Island is barely part of us. Yeah. It's like, I mean, I I do subscribe to the idea that the city proper is important because those people mm -hmm. pay taxes like I yeah. do. Mm -hmm. But is. like, I have an anti-essentialist view of Chicago where I'm like, mm -hmm. no, it's it's cool that like 
there's so diff- many different areas that are so different than each yeah. other. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, yeah. They they definitely yeah. seem to have a narrow conception of what New York living is. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, that that line, the G line, it's mm-hmm. the only one that doesn't pass through Manhattan, yeah. and it connects Brooklyn and Queens. Mm-hmm. And like people love to hate on it for no reason, even though they should have more lines like that. <laughs> yeah, in New it's York. Cla- yeah. No, we would kill. I mean, this everyone talks about it in Chicago. Is we wish we had a radial line, you know, that connected like the mid parts of all the lines, and then yeah. maybe the end parts of the lines too, but. People but, come with names like the gray line. And but stuff. if we have a crosstown line, it should be not north-south on the west side. It should be east-west on the north side. Yeah. Because uh-huh. there's That's just hard. more people up there. Like, yeah, it makes no, sense. it's fair. You know, driving from like, yeah, Lakeview to Wicker is always like, wow, that's a lot of side streets and turns I had to make there. Like, I wish I yeah. could have taken a train over there. But another thing we were talking about was um, we want to talk about is the Senate right now dress codes oh, yeah. more broadly this is you know our our expectations of like what is the uniform or the costume of a politician which had stabilized to a point where it was just you wear like a very dark sober suit you wear a white dress shirt and you wear a tie like that was the idea yeah um, yeah so the house and the senate they had an, an informal dress code that everyone abided by they did have like some rules like for example the house had a rule that you couldn't wear hats on the House floor that was repealed when Ilhan Omar was elected. Yeah. She wears a hijab, yeah. and is that's what they should have done, of course. And mm-hmm. but there are informal rules. I'm, I'm not like I don't know everything about this, but basically, over the past like few years, we've had two senators that have been flagrantly disrespecting um, centuries-old dress code. Um, both Kristen Sinema and John Fetterman. Kristen Sinema is the senior senator from Arizona, and then John Fetterman is the junior senator from Pennsylvania. And they disabide the dress codes in opposite ways. So yeah. Kristen it'd be, Sinema, it'd be funny if they did it in the same way, I have to say. <laughs> um, but yes, yeah, continue. Yeah, so the way that Sinema uh, does it is she doesn't follow the dress code by kind of dressing up. She kind of looks like a PG-13 stripper. <laughs> and so she'll be wearing like high heels on the Senate floor that are um, like boots up to her upper thighs. And uh, <laughs> she'll wear like purple wigs. And like, it's kind of like she's Met Gala-esque. And then Fetterman, the way he dresses is like, uh, like a flop slob where <laughs> he's like wearing hoodies and sneakers and gym shorts yeah. and yeah i yeah i was also suspicious of fetterman for that it's just like his whole thing was he came from this like he was tr- he was a college educated guy like ivy league educated guy who wanted to turn around this like sleepy small town which i'm i'm all for that like that's one of my big things is like how do we like revitalize you know deindustrialized america uh, you got a tattoo of like how many kids like died on his watch as mayor in this town. So he had all these like this, all these symbols of like, you yeah. know, why he cares so much about his constituents. And I think the idea is like, I'm not like those other politicians. I don't dress up like them because I'm too, what, busy like helping people was the implication there as if like wearing a suit like makes it impossible to care about your con- constituents. It's yeah. the same thing as the um, Zelensky thing where he's like always in military garb now. Um, and it's like, well, Every world leader in World War II was able to, like, protect, <laughs> on the yeah. Allied side, was able to protect, you know, their country while uh, wearing a suit and tie, and more yeah. so, because it was even more dressed up back then. Yeah, it's just, it reeks of insincerity to me. Yeah. So the Senate was going to pass a rule to, I think, formally loosen the dress code in a way that would specifically allow cinema and Fetterman to do their thing. But... 
I think they passed a law called the Shorts Act that was spearheaded by Joe Manchin, the senator from West Virginia, who also sucks like all these other people. Yeah. And um, damn, this is the one time yeah. I ever agreed with Joe Manchin on something. <laughs> that yeah. Is, like, yeah. It's truly hate on all sides, deservedly. Yeah, yeah, but I think they formalized it. I think what happens now is like Fetterman can still vote, but he can't vote on the floor. Like every time he has to vote, he has to like go back to some room in the back and like like put his hand out and be like, <laughs> <That's> <laughs> or not literally, cool. but. And he could of course solve this by wearing a suit is the thing, yeah. right? It's something like that. It's like dumb, but. Yeah, no, I kind of yeah. like that. It's maybe the least important bill to pass when like literally everything needs to be addressed. Yeah. Um, but that's, but, you know what? I, I have a little bit of a stomach for catty things and politics. It's politics after all. But no, I think it is, I, I kind of felt like it didn't matter too much, but now I kind of feel like it does because Sagar on Breaking Points he has been critiquing Fetterman and cinema for a long, long time. And I feel like he's okay. proven himself right. Because, like, Fetterman recently has really sucked. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, cinema's been, like, on my, like, no list for a long time. <laughs> like, I, the minute that Ruben Gallego, which I'm revealing that I'm, like, a politics nerd. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I really am. There's some deep um, cuts, yeah. Yeah, Ruben Gallego is, like, a... Uh, He's one of the congressmen who's now challenging cinema for her seat. But like within like two hours of him announcing he was running, I donated like money. Because <laughs> I've been pissed at her for a long, long time. But Fetterman, like recently, he publicly said that he is not a progressive and he doesn't know where people get that idea. Yeah, when he ran on that to get into office. He oh, ran on man. that. He like got endorsements from Bernie Sanders. Like oh, yeah. I voted for him. No, I didn't vote for him in Pennsylvania, but I gave him money too. Because yeah. like I wanted him to like beat out um Connor Lamb, who was running for his seat. Yeah. Oh, man, I see my politics knowledge, like I'm not gonna get into it in most episodes, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> don't hold me back. <laughs> yeah. Um but yeah, it's like I think, okay, this is this is what this is all building up to. <laughs> if you cannot meet the wardrobe requirements of your job. You probably don't deserve the power that comes with it. Because yeah. if you're flippantly being like, okay, I, I don't have to meet this criteria. I don't need to meet this standard. But then the people around you, like your Senate staffers, still mm -hmm. have to abide by the dress code. Yeah. Like, no, you don't deserve it. Mm -hmm. Like, there's something going on that's narcissistic. Yeah, it's just a very me, me, me kind of thing. I, yeah. I'm a, just a big dress codes guy across the board. I have a very optimistic view of them where dress codes dress codes bring clothes out of the way for other things to happen. The idea is that if everyone's on the same page and like dressed according to a preset kind of thing of rules, all right, now the clothes are aside, what are we doing here? Are we like solving a problem? Are we enjoying each other's company? Are we like, um, I don't know, going to a nice restaurant? Like it kind of just, it forms a background that like a canvas upon which other things can be done. But yeah, one of my little rants is like, I don't know, I'm on like the Chicago food subreddit. I want to know restaurants that are opening and stuff. It's just interesting, but it's a very toxic little uh, community. But there's always a type of post that emerges and people are asking for recommendations. It's always, this has happened so many times I think that I'm going insane. Um, but it's a woman gets on there and she's saying like, my hubby has a uh, dinner coming up or it's his birthday or something and he loves steak and we want to go to a fancy restaurant. But where is there a fancy restaurant where we don't need to dress up? Because he... The hubby in question. It's always it's always hubby or something. Yeah. Um, uh, he's more of a t-shirt and jeans guy, or he's more of a shorts and a t-shirt guy, and he doesn't like to dress up. And it's just like, oh, that's cool to hear that he's more of a shorts and a t-shirt guy. 
what does it have to do with going to a nice restaurant? Like you, yeah. you told me what he wears in his you know private time and all that, but he wants to go to a nice restaurant where someone who has lots of training and skills and experience wants to do something very creative and serve him, and he's not willing to meet them even the slightest way. All right, yeah. cool. Yeah, that's a very annoying. Uh, you, yeah, you can hate me for that take. I think it's pretty snobbish, but I don't know. I'm just hardening in my ways as I get older, <laughs> so I'm just gonna double down yeah. on that one. No, it. I personally, like, I want things to move in that direction mostly because people look nicer. Mm -hmm. It's like, I go, I look everywhere, people are wearing, like, yoga pants, leggings, like, they're wearing, like, sweatpants, it's, people Mm -hmm. don't look attractive. I would like to live in a world where people are attractive. Yeah, it was, uh, every so often we go to the um, Chicago Athletic Association, which used to be a private membership club. And then it was, uh, the, that club closed down and the building was used for like a very nice hotel um, with a really great like lobby in it. And there was another club, the um, University Club of Chicago, which stayed a private membership club. And it's a similar sized building. And I've been inside both. And the University Club where there's still like restrictions on membership and all that, like it's this beautiful wood paneled interior, custom millwork, everything. And everyone's in like at least a blazer, you know, some places, They've updated their dress code. There's some areas that are like business casual and all that. And then you go to the one functioning as a lobby now and it's just as beautiful on the inside architecture wise, but it's just like people in shorts. Like it's, it just seems like it does, it feels mean to the architecture is how I'm going to describe it. Like it seems just like, I don't know. It's such a beautiful space. I mean, it feels like someone's like dystopian science fiction short story from like the seventies where it's like, yeah. And, 50 years from now, people will have all these problems and let us be walking around in sweatpants and pajamas, stumbling yeah. on opioids. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, that's kind of <laughs> a problem. <laughs> yeah. And there's something even sadder about it when you're like surrounded by like the beauty of the old world and everyone's just yeah. slumming around in it. It's hard not to like get um, crotchety and like elderly about that. Yeah. Um, but, you know. Uh, my uniform experience, let's talk about that. Um, I've never super had to wear one. Um, I worked for this one small construction company and they actually just gave me a whole bunch of black t-shirts with the logo. This is before I dressed up too much, but I was just in a t-shirt every day, at least in the summer. In the winter, I had like a puffy vest with the logo and I'd put that over a flannel. It was nice to not have the decision of what to wear every day. And I did feel like I was always representing the company. Um, but putting something over your heart feels very important. You know, um, that's like a very, it's like, pricey real estate, I feel. That's like, you know, right over um, such a great symbol. Um, I've had to wear like more uniforms, maybe. I mean, the American apparel uniform was always fun. Yeah, no, that's, it's just that's like the wearing, coolest uniform ever. <laughs> yeah, it's just wearing head to toe American apparel. There's also like, I did work for a grocery store for a bit. That was like, not that fun. And when I was working in the grocery store, um, a certain former mayor, uh, <laughs> came in the grocery store and um, she uh, asked to take a picture with me because I kind of know her. And um, yeah, uh, I felt embarrassed. But like, it was funny because like people, if I showed people this picture, they'd be like, you asked to take a picture with her when you were working? (laughs) It's like, no, 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 she She asked asked to take a picture with (laughs) me. Um, Yeah, so Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah, there's those two. And then um, I've I've also just had jobs where it's like the expectation is to like look nice. Like I worked for the Museum of Contemporary Art for a while. Mm -hmm. And for that, they like wanted us to look like chic. Yeah, yeah, black turtleneck. That was was, like a fun place to work. Have you ever Um, worn a black turtleneck? 
No, I don't wear turtlenecks. Yeah, I was gonna say I cannot picture. No, you no, 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 no. That's I like, like not the turtleneck. No, I friends, everyone, all of my friends make fun of me every single time I wear them, and yet, like a soldier going into battle, I always put one back on. Yeah, <laughs> I think they're flattering. What about knock neck? How about mock necks? I've always wanted to own one. I don't. Yeah, it's got a light Jerry Seinfeld vibe to it. Um, to me, they make me think of Star Trek. Star Trek. Oh yeah, there is something like semi. Yeah, I'm a little futuristic about it. Yeah. Um, yeah, my grandma told me her her father was like well dressed all the time. He was a doctor, and he'd go down to the city to like buy. Nice clothes, um, and it was always you know shirt and tie and jacket all the time. But then in retirement, and this would have been in the '60s and '70s, he started wearing silk turtlenecks under his blazers, and that's like what most of the photos I see of him. It looks so fucking cool. Yeah. I think it can be. I've never done it. I don't own a silk turtleneck, but it's like one of those ideas I have in the future of like, yeah, it definitely pulls it off. Because the thing is, like, you still need to wear some kind of neck covering to protect the blazer from the oils of your neck. You know, you should wear something. And also collars always frame the, the face nicely. But yeah, the turtleneck, big vote for the turtleneck, I have to say. Yeah. Um, another costume, not costume, uniform I had to wear. This was kind of costumey, I will say. Um, I was a camp counselor for a few years. Um, on opening day, when the parents drop off their kids, we had to wear a polo that they'd give us and it had the camp logo embroidered on it. And one of the years I was there was like bright red. And I just think it's in the... Wisconsin heat, it's nice to wear short shorts, I think. I think it's just very, like, freeing and ventilating. But this also, like, I was dressed up as a very stereotypical, like, 70s camp counselor. But I think the parents liked that, because, I mean, I think a lot of us have consumed movies that are, like, somehow involving summer camps in the 70s, 80s, or 90s, you know, from, like, Parent Trap to Meatballs is another movie. Wet Hot American Summer is a more recent send-up of that genre. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it's just, I don't know, it's kind of fun to fit people's, like, preconceived notion of, like, that's a summer camp counselor. That is like the platonic idea. It's like a 20-something-year-old kid in short shorts and a polo with a clipboard. Like, yeah, it's yeah. fun when you, like, you encounter someone of a particular profession and like you don't expect them to still be like abiding by like a traditional uniform. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, like Amtrak. If you go to Amtrak, <laughs> yeah. they really look like train conductors. Yeah, uh-huh. Uh, no, I, I love throwback things like that, yeah. You don't see doctors wear suit and ties. Anymore, and then the lab coat over it. That was you know, for a longer time. Of course, yeah. ER docs, like, you know, it's all scrubs all the time. Yeah. But for like, if you're just doing little sit down checkups with people, like, I don't know, I think you could go old school with it. Not super old school where you wear that mirror on your forehead. You ever seen that? It's a very stereotypical like idea of doctors. They'd have a mirror on their forehead. That would, I've never heard of this. It would direct the light. It was like before they had, I don't know, flashlights. Oh, it would direct yeah. the light from the room and make it easier to see stuff. But yeah, it's one of those like, Older symbols. Oh man, is that what like dental hygienists used to have to do? Yeah, probably back in the I day. feel like flashlights are like, wait, when were flashlights invented? <laughs> I met someone once. I'm who, sure uh, shortly after. Yeah, flashlights were invented in 1899. Um, <laughs> which I knew that they had been around a long time because I met someone once who like, they lived in a building where they were the first tenants after the very first factory for flashlights in the United States Whoa. existed. So basically in this building, there was the first flat factory for flashlights in the US. It survived like a hundred years and then it went down. And then like someone I had met had been like the first person to live in it after that. Oh, wow. The old flashlight factory. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. Um, yeah. Closing thoughts on uniforms? Yeah, so. What do I want my central point to be in this episode? Um, so 
As Fussell described, the uniforms that men often wear give them a sense of purpose. However, uh, there is some risk involved in putting a man in uniform as deindividuation can occur. But if men are put in uniform and there's proper oversight and accountability, society is going to benefit as a whole. Mm -hmm. I think that we're always craving a degree of structure. It's like we're always trying to find, like, you want just enough uniform to like give you a sense of self, you know, a role which helps your sense of self, but then it needs to be less restrictive enough that you can also fill in your own individuality in there. But yeah. Yeah, I think people are always gonna find a way to like add in a little bit. Like people are always gonna be in between costume and uniform unless mm -hmm. they're like going out to a party or if they're like in a job where they'll get fired if they don't wear it. Yeah. Otherwise, they're always going to be in between. And like, yeah, it's important people to like feel like they fit in, but also that they are a bit different and they have their own individual life. Mm -hmm. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. <laughs>